0: Welcome to Superintendent Radio Network. I'm Guy Cipriano. This is episode number 73 of the Tartan Talk series. And joining us is a guest who we spoke with way, way, way back on episode number 16. Michael Benkuski. Michael is based in Chicago. He works all over the Midwest. He's also done some work in Florida, including a recent project at a Dick Wilson-designed course that he's going to discuss here on the podcast. We're glad to have him back. A lot has changed in the last five years, and we'll just let Michael tell us in his own words what has changed for a golf course architect. But before we get going with Michael, we'd like to thank Better Billy Bunker for supporting this podcast. Better Billy Bunker is not only a big supporter of the American Society of Golf Course Architects, Better Billy Bunker supports a number of industry efforts, including the work of golf course superintendents. So we're glad they're on board, and we're glad that Michael was able to join the podcast again. Well, Michael, it's great to have you on the podcast again. Hard to believe it's been nearly five years since we last spoke on air for our Tartan Talks podcast. Let's get this out of the way. What have you been up to in the last five years?
1: Uh, it's been a wild ride, hasn't it, over the last five years with everything? I mean, a lot has changed, uh, both in the golf market and everywhere else. So, um, But but I was lucky. I mean, you know, work was steady um, up until the pandemic, and then after then, You know, we didn't know what was going to happen come March of 2020. You know, here here in Illinois, they shut down golf courses for a few months, so didn't know what was going to happen there. Luckily, I had a project already into construction over in the Des Moines area that I was able to keep working on, kind of wade through those first three months to see what was going to go, what was going to happen with everything. And luckily, obviously, they figured out that golf was a good thing to do during the pandemic. And since then, you know, golf has boomed especially here in Illinois. I mean, golf courses are busy. Private clubs are, you know, full capacity now with membership. And so, you know, work has then increased here in the last couple of years. And I'm probably busier now than I've ever been, which has been a good thing to have happen. So it makes it, you know, fun to get all, all the work going and also, you know, a little bit of hectic trying to make sure you can get it all done and, you know, now the big problem is finding people to actually do the construction because everybody's so busy.
0: Yeah, I think I've asked every guest we've had on the Tartan Talks over the last year this question: How do you manage your time? How do you balance? How do you make sure that you get everything done when uh, you're expected to get it done?
1: It it just I mean, luckily I've, I have a home office, so if I need to spend more time here, I can do it. So that's always a good thing and it's just like you say just kind of balancing the projects and you know you're used to doing that I was used to doing that back in the boom of the 90s and all of that kind of balancing you know 10 12 projects at a time so being able to to balance a little less than that you know is a little easier but at the same time you're just kind of working with clients and and making sure that you get the work done when they need it when they need it done
0: so you recently uh spent some time uh in Nebraska with some fellow ASGCA members uh what did you learn from that experience, and how enjoyable was it?
1: Uh, it was it was very enjoyable, even though we did have some up and down weather during the week. But we had about thirty golf course architects uh, that made the trip over to Sand Hills, and a you know bunch of us were able to play Sand Hills. I was actually able to get three rounds of golf in at Sand Hills over two days, so it was nice to do and nice to be able to you know finally see that golf course and then get to play it multiple times just to see how it plays. And then a couple of us went up to Cap Rock to see that golf course that Gil just finished last year and then uh, stopped off at Wild Horse on our way back. So three different golf courses in the Sandhills area. Each one, you know, similar landscapes, but each one was completely different at the same time. So it was just an appreciation of golf in that part of the country. I went through Nebraska when I was a young child. I remember the drive just being a boring drive along Interstate 80. But you get up into the Sandhills and the... Just the landscape really changes, and you just gain a new appreciation of, the, of that part of the country. You know, you're playing golf courses that kind of re- remind you of golf courses over in the British Isles, but you just don't have an ocean right next door to you. So it's it's pretty. It was a pretty neat experience. I'm glad that I was able to do it.
0: I've never been there, but from what I understand, the landscapes are unlike nearly any landscape in the united states or in the world for that matter when you're playing golf courses that are such different landscapes from the ones that you're working on do you learn anything that you can apply to your work at all
1: i think you gain a new appreciation of just using the land as much as you can mm-hmm. and kind of making things fit more into the land um, we always try to do that anyway just to minimize construction costs and, and make the golf course look more natural in some you know. Here in the Chicago area, it's a little different because everything's so flat, so it's hard to do that. Uh, But you do kind of gain that appreciation of you know just using whatever feature you can find out on the site and getting that involved into the golf hole. Uh, So that was always a good part of it. And you're right, in that part of the country, I mean, you stand up on some areas and you're looking what seems like 30 or 40 miles out in the distance because there's just nothing blocking your views at all.
0: So shifting uh, the conversation a bit, uh, a few months ago I had a chance to hear you speak in Chicago at a MAGCS We One fundraiser. It was a tremendous event, and one of your focuses was practice areas of your presentation. If a club is looking to enhance its practice areas, what's a good starting point? Where do these projects start, and what are the early conversations like about practice areas?
1: Right, yep, and you're right, and I've been involved in more and more of those over the last couple years, even pre-pandemic, and since then, just with the influx of golfers, people are looking at more, how can they enhance those areas? Just because we're seeing more golfers, it seems, try to get into the game now, and we want them to to learn somewhere. Uh, But really, I mean, the first step is always just kind of take an initial look at at their area and the property that they have, um, and what they're using. A couple of the projects that I've done in the past, they, the Gorses didn't have any practice areas, so we're able to find some additional land in order to to move some golf holes around or move a few features around in order to create that practice area, just because they're they're seeing the need now to, to have an area for people to practice on. Uh, but it's really working, you know, those initial visits and kind of getting the feel, seeing what they might have and, and what we can use there, trying to make, you know in my mind practice areas they need to be multi-use areas you know you don't just want an area where somebody's going to go out and just bang balls and you know half hour banging balls and then they get bored with it and they move on to something else um you want them to stick around you want them to be able to practice different shots with me it's all about incorporating as many shots that you might have out on the golf course and be able to practice those in in these areas and get used to playing them a little more
0: and we've all been to some clubs and Facilities that now use their practice areas as social spaces too. How does that factor into some of the decisions you make when there's a social element in addition to the hardcore golf practice element?
1: It does. I mean, we're seeing more of these Himalayas type type putting courses. Um, People being able to use those and getting people, you know, again with being outside a little bit more, people are trying to do that. Outdoor eating, trying to incorporate those areas around maybe an outdoor eating or an outdoor bar area, just to create you know, more atmosphere among, between golfers and patrons at the same time. And we're seeing that we're, we're able to do that more and more and try and find those spaces where um, the members are the, are the, you know, just the group of a whole will try and get out there and use those and, and just create more of that social atmosphere.
0: Obviously a lot of the older clubs don't have a ton of available land. How do you make it work, Michael, when there isn't a heck of a lot of land there and, how mind-numbing can it be? To just try to to fit a few acres in, in for practice areas.
1: Uh, yeah, sometimes those, and sometimes those end up being the more interesting projects because you are trying to think a little more about how you can use those. And again, I think it gets back to this—you know, creating these multiple uses, and you know, kind of looking at it—you know, um, multitasking in a smaller site where maybe you might not be able to get. Get that 300 yard practice facility where they can be out there hitting drivers all the time, but give them an area where at least they can practice uh, more of their short game. Uh, that's, you know, as we know, that's probably the biggest part of the game that you need to practice more, but people don't seem to do it. And if you can find those areas where maybe they can practice that 120 yard shot and in and create different situations, then if we can find land that we can do that and we can create those areas, again, tie those maybe with a you know, a putting course or a large area like that. Um, Great. Then the club can go and look to create events where maybe they have hole-in-one contests. They just have little member outings where they can go and play, you know, sometimes try and fit a little three-hole golf course where maybe you only have, you know, holes of 80 to 120 yards. But if they can play three or so holes out there, just kind of give them something to do. At the same time, they're practicing their game because they're hitting these shorter shots and, and working on that aspect of their game. But it again just creates that atmosphere of people just having fun out on the golf course and and be able to learn at the same time.
0: Do you see situations where practice facility work can lead to bigger projects, and what type of experimental ground can a practice facility be for course renovations, especially with uh turf grass varieties and species, bunker sand bunker style and uh elements like that?
1: Yeah, sometimes. That's kind of, when we're looking at a practice area, especially in some of these short game areas, that's sometimes the main focus, especially if you just begin to work with a club. I've worked with a couple where um, initially they wanted to look at these, you know, practice areas, knowing that in the future, they might want to do something out on the golf course. So what we end up doing then is kind of saying, okay, what are we thinking about from a bunker renovation? What type of golf course do you have? Maybe a bunker style. Maybe we go in and then, rebuild their practice area either to match the bunker style that we're going to fit or maybe we throw a couple different bunker styles in there so people can see what they could look like and get the feel for that. At the same time, using different bunker liners nowadays, everybody wants to know which one might be the best for their property. So you might do different bunkers with a different bunker liner and then even different bunker sands at the same time. Sometimes that can, you know, impact where you say, okay, let's try a different bunk, couple of different bunker stands and, and then you can play those for a year or so and see which one you like, see which one the superintendent can maintain a little better because obviously we're always thinking about them as to how they can maintain the area and make sure we don't give them something that they're going to have to spend more money on and then create a longer-term maintenance issue for the entire club. At the same time, if they're looking at maybe regrassing. Uh, their greens, maybe regressing their fairways, something like that. Uh, we might either, you know, select a variety that we can then plant on these new greens and let them see how it's going to play and make sure it's the right one. Um, you know, sometimes you might go in there and do a couple different varieties, maybe do some test plots at the same time, just, just to see what you have. Again, trying to work with the, the superintendent to make sure that they're not creating something that's going to be a maintenance issue in the future and, and drive up some of the costs.
0: You know, anybody that looks at uh, old course maps and plans of Golden Age facilities doesn't see the practice facility incorporated, or if it is, it's a small practice field. I see that term a lot. When did practice areas become big part of golf clubs, and where do, where do you see the future of practice areas going, Michael? Uh,
1: I, think th- I think the future on them is pretty good. I think people are going to mm-hmm. you know, gravitate more to, to practicing the game um, I think we're seeing not only with practice areas, but we're seeing more of an influx of, you know, the learning facilities where you have the indoor simulators, uh, especially up here in the north where they can open up those in the wintertime. So I think people are using those more than to get out in the wintertime. And that's going to transition to being out on the golf course thinking, hey, I'm used to practicing. I want to practice a little bit more. So I see that as still being something that's that's going to continue. Mm-hmm. As far as when, you know, when they started, I think, you know, from from me it seems going back to probably, you know, maybe in the fifties and sixties and that modern area era of design where um, we were using maybe a little bit better land where we weren't limited to, you know, having bad land to build golf courses on that were maybe floodplain areas or something like that. Where now they had a little bit more room to open up and, and create some bigger corridors for the golf. Uh, They were creating longer golf courses, so they just had more area to work with. Uh, So to me, it seems like more as you're working with those golf courses from the modern era that you're seeing, you know, where practice areas became more and more involved in the the overall design.
0: What have you learned about the size of range tees over the last few years? And uh, how big should one be for an 18-hole facility with all these people coming to the game and practicing and spending more, more time at the club?
1: Yeah, sometimes I don't know if you can get them big enough. <laughs> yeah. At the same time, it just—it seems like you know you go out and you and you think you have one that's of decent size, and then you still get it it getting beaten up. Yeah. And obviously, that you know that gets back to you know how many rounds of golf do you get on your on your facility, and you know where are you located? If you're in a major metropolitan area, where you're going to get a lot more play. Um, I mean, if you can see something of a, at least a couple acres, that would always be nice to have. Um, you know, we'd also look at, you know, the depth of the tee to make sure we have enough rotation to be able to move the tees around day to day and let the turf recover as you're, as you're moving back and moving forward. Uh, so it's, you know, again, some of it just gets into how much land do you have available? Can you get enough area? Cause it's same, said sometimes, you know, you just can't have enough in order to work on. Um, so it, it just kind of, just kind of depends on where you're at.
0: Let's get to one of your recent projects. Uh, recently worked at the champions course at Palm Country Club. Am I pronouncing that right first off, Michael?
1: Yes, Palm Air.
0: Yeah, well good. I, I usually get paid to speak, not write, so I'm glad I got that right. And what type of opportunity was it to work on the champions course at Palmair? And that's a, a Dick Wilson design. Yes it
1: was a Dick Wilson design. And this there there's two Palm Airs in it, and this is the one in Sarasota I found out that there's another Palm Air on the east coast and I think it was they had changed the name um Back in the, I believe back in the uh, 70s,
0: where um,
1: it was the Soto Lakes and they changed it to Palmaire because the Palmaire group had bought out the club. So um, th- I think that's why there's two Airs now in Florida. But yes, this was a Dick Wilson design back in 1958. So um, unfortunately, it wasn't all still Dick Wilson. The greens were rebuilt back in the 90s, um, but the routing was, was similar or exactly the same as Dick Wilson had. Um, with some minor changes as housing began to be more developed along the golf course, but it was, I mean, a great experience. Just I tried to look up as much as I could about Dick Wilson, um, leading into and during the project. Um, unfortunately, there's not a, a lot written about him. Um, you know, he battled some alcoholism when he was um, doing his design work, and and that kind of influenced um, some of you know what was left behind regarding him. Um, writings or any of that. Uh, but he was such a great architect, and one of those you know, modern-era golf course architects, him and Robert Trent Jones, that were just you know, the two masters of the time. They competed a lot against each other for these projects, and they each created golf courses that were just strong, well-designed golf courses that could stand the test of time. I mean, this was a 7,000-yard golf course nearly from the beginning in 1958, and even now we just stretched it up to – just over 7,100, but it still plays similar to that. And Wilson was big into um, going from the, the ground game of the golden age of design to now going to the aerial game where people were hitting more of their shots into the air. So he was guarding bun- guarding greens more with bunkers, um, elevating greens a little bit more in order to make you have to hit that aerial game in order to get into the into their pin areas that he would create. So it just, like I said, great learning experience from that. Aspect And then also um, finding out some of his other, you know, design characteristics with bunkering, um, tee placement. He was big into the runway tees, him and Robert Trent Jones both, where we're just creating these long and we were able to restore many of them. These long tees that are maybe 90 yards long in length. And you're just able to rotate tee markers a little bit more now to create a different feel of the golf course, depending on how the wind is, how the ground's playing and just gives you more variety when you're looking at playing the golf course.
0: You brought up a great point about the the shift of the game going from the ground game to the aerial game in the 50s and 60s. Uh, When you were doing work at Palm Air, how did you balance Wilson's initial design intents with the aerial game with uh, the vast number of players that need to play the ground game here in 2022? How tough were some of those decisions to keep the Wilson intent with the people who play the ground game today?
1: Uh, It it always enters into your mind because you want to give everybody access to try and get onto a putting surface and get onto the green. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it does enter your mind as to how you're going to, you know, set up the golf hole, uh, looking at how you're going to maybe guard certain areas of the green if they want to, you know, have tournament pins or just be able to, to give that variety, Mm -hmm. but yet also be able to allow the golfers to to work their shot into them. Some of what you can do at the same time is with, certain moundings around the greens is trying to adjust mounds where maybe that run-up shot now gives them a chance to tr- try and kick more onto the green as well and give them that the way to play that shot and make them try and play that shot at the same time where maybe they can't, like you said, can't get the ball high enough in the air in order to land on the green in order to stop it. Uh, so it's kind of working with side slopes at the same time to create those bumpers to let them try and try and keep the ball on the green and let them roll that around.
0: I just I just got done reading uh, Ron Witten's book about Joe Lee, and Joe Lee, for our listeners that aren't familiar, was Dick Wilson's partner. And I'm going through the book, and I noticed that a lot of their designs are really bunker-heavy. He- How do you determine uh, what bunkers need to stay and go, especially considering the present and likely f- f- maintenance conundrums, uh, you know? some of them have historical value. I'm sure some maybe don't have as much historical value. How do you make the bunker decisions when you're doing a, a project on a Wilson design course? Uh,
1: that was interesting that you bring up Ron Witten and Jolie, because when I first started working at Palm Air, they have two golf courses, one in Dick Wilson, one is Jolie. And knowing that mm-hmm. Jolie was a disciple of Dick Wilson, I um, sent an email right away to Ron Witten saying, Ron, I, you know, I found your book here and, and I was going to buy your book and everything. So, um, and he was glad to see that, you know, his book was still relevant to what we're looking at today and all of that. So, mm-hmm. um, so then looking at, yeah, taking in those styles and I, you know, Jolie had done some golf course here in the Chicago area. Dick Wilson obviously did um, Cog Hill in the Chicago area. So we knew, I knew a little bit about them. So that helped going into the project as well. Uh, but then getting back to the bunkers and, and seeing which bunkers would fit, um, I always look at it because today that's still a big topic when we're doing any type of bunker plan um, is sometimes reducing the amount of bunkers that you have on a golf course because we're just looking at, you know, again, from a maintenance standpoint, um, construction, obviously construction costs are going up, especially with building bunkers. So trying to see how we can minimize that. And when I look at a golf course and look at and study it, um, I always tell them, you know, I don't care how many bunkers you have. It's just the quantity of bunkers you have. If you have, you know, 50 bunkers, but you have 100,000 square feet of sand, what if we took those 50 bunkers and made them work better on the golf course, but now you only have 75,000 square feet of sand? So we're able to reduce it by, you know, 25%. And, And then that can help them throughout the construction, throughout the maintenance. And then it just relates to how does that bunker fit? Maybe you'd have one... In the case of one large bunker in front of the green, maybe you can split that up into a couple smaller bunkers um, that now you still have that sand that's taking place of where you want it from the strategy of the golf hole, but you've reduced that bunker size or that bunker quantity down where they're not having to maintain as much of that sand. And then at the same time, it gets into, you know, for this, we kind of call this a reimagining of Dick Wilson out here on the champions course where then you're looking at how do golfers play the golf course. And it's playing the golf course with multiple members, seeing where they hit the ball, seeing how they play the golf course. Um, maybe a bunker fits in this area. Maybe it doesn't fit in another area. And looking at those landing areas where you can adjust them in order to create bunkers that are, that are spaced out in order to affect multiple people. And then going back to, like you say, historical, there's something. I mean, one thing we did at, at the Champions course was on the seventh hole, Wilson's original design, he had a four-bunker complex in the inside corner of the dog leg. Over time, going through past aerial photos, it had been changed from four bunkers to one big bunker to one smaller bunker over time. And one thing we looked at, is said, why don't we go back and let's restore that four-bunker complex. It was probably one of the only places where we had that opportunity on the golf course to really restore one of Dick Wilson's original features. So we did that there. And um, I think, you know, it turned out well, and the members all appreciate that. At, at this course, they were big into their history. Um, they have a whole wall in their clubhouse that's all about Dick Wilson and Jolie and their two golf courses and the history of, of the golf courses. Um, they hosted um, PGA Tour events back in the early, seven, or early 60s. They host LPGA events as well. So they're really big into that history of hosting events and and the Dick Wilson heritage that they have going on there. So that was something that helped when we're looking at at the project as well, trying to get more of those features involved and and just kind of updating the golf course at the same way. You know, as I mentioned, too, you know, the runway tees were a big thing where we tried to incorporate that and and just create and bring that back into the golf course.
0: Yeah, you mentioned tees. I mean, you added some tees, too, that made – Make the course under five thousand yards. Now, um, how important are tees of that length in today's golf market? And what did you do at Palm Air to m- make sure that they fit within the existing layout? And you mentioned the runway tees. Obviously, that's one way they can fit within the existing layout.
1: That was one way. And um, you know, one thing at Palm Air, um, starting out, is they had eight sets of tee markers, which you know, a lot of people, a lot of people would say that's quite a, quite a lot, but. At the same time, it fit with that golf course. So they were already sort of experimenting with, you know, where can they add tees in order to shorten up the golf course, being, you know, a, a not really retirement community, but, you know, being an area where they do have a lot of retired golfers that have moved down into the, into the Sarasota area that are members, they were always looking at how can we make the golf course a little bit you know, easier, a little bit more fun for as our members do get a little bit older and not hitting the golf balls as far. Uh, so being able to take that into account what we did when we set up the golf course because we were looking at it from both aspects we wanted to you know add a little length in order to restore some of the original difficulty that dick wilson had into the golf course but at the same time looking at how can we go forward and with the eight markers we basically selected our middle marker of six thousand yards that they already had in place and said from that marker the t is going back which we had Uh, three sets of tees going back, let's lengthen those a little bit. The tees moving forward, let's shorten them up a little bit. And we're able to space out these eight markers where now we have three to 400 yards of difference as you're playing each marker um, in order to now give that more variety for each golfer. And what we found when we did that now is as the members have been playing it, is they're kind of used to playing that certain marker and now they go back to play it. And if they were playing, you know, past that 6,000 yard, they might think, ooh, this one might be a little bit too long. Maybe I'll play this other shorter tee now. Or they actually had the variety to say, well, maybe I can move it around from day to day. And then the same thing going forward, um, some of the golfers were saying, I used to play this tee, um, but now it might be a little bit too short for me and I might want to move back and they're able to move back. It's just, again, that, that variety of letting them be able to do that let them be able to play a golf course differently, maybe from day to day, depending on the conditions, um, if they want to create a new challenge for themselves, uh, you know, just again, that variety that we can create back out in the golf course.
0: I try to separate uh, personal from professional when I, when I play golf, but when I play with my father and he plays most of his rounds in the the Midwest and Northeast, I definitely see some courses now where he really struggles to play because they just don't have the right keys for him. Uh, how do you make the case to a uh, uh, owner, general manager, or committee that that there need to be some tees added? You know, especially under fifty five hundred yards for these players who are uh, getting older um, in the boomer generation.
1: Uh, we that's one thing through the ASGCA that we've really been yep. concentrating on. We've had a lot of meetings um, talking about tees. Obviously, you know, back in you know the Tiger proofing days with tees going back and people looking at that, but now um in, in today's era saying, well, you know, how can we move tees forward and can we create those options? Mm-hmm. And we've had a lot of data that have helped us to to put that together. Arthur Little's done a lot of studies with swing speeds and how far does a golf ball typically go with different swing speeds. So we're able to use that when you go into meet with the club and say, hey, if somebody has a seventy five mile an hour swing speed, this is how far they're typically going to hit the ball. Why are we making them play a golf course that really is the the equivalent to almost an eight thousand yard golf course when they're playing a course at, you know, maybe fifty two, fifty-four hundred yards. We you know, get in there and explain to them and that was one thing. Um, going back at Air, when I played one of my rounds after they did the grand opening, I played with a husband and wife and she's a really she was a really good golfer, is a really good golfer, and her husband's a decent, you know, probably, you know, go double digit handicapper. And we were all playing three different sets of tees. I said I wanted to play one tee, and they all wanted to play their tee. And we'd hit out into the fairway and then hit into the green, and I'd ask them, what club did you hit? Maybe she'd say, oh, I hit nine iron. I said, well, I hit eight iron, but I should have hit nine iron and something like that. So we all found out that the tee we were playing at, we were able to play the exact same golf course because we were hitting the same shot into the green. So trying to get clubs to realize that, that, hey, you know, just because – you have this tee, somebody's hitting a five iron into the green, but somebody else is hitting a nine iron. Is that fair for that person? And they kind of start to, you know, when we talk about swing speeds and all that, they kind of start to catch on then a little bit more and look at maybe we do need to to update this and create these shorter, shorter tees then as well. And I think, you know, we're able to do that. You know, we've also created this long leaf tee system where you can go out and onto the practice area, have different markers where golfers can, you know, hit from the practice area, and see how far their golf ball is typically going and then relate that to what tee they should play out on the golf course as well. Mm-hmm. So I think there's some traction being built there. I think it's you know, and it's gonna to continue to gain as, you know, you know, some of these newer golfers are coming into the game over the last couple of years, but just like we talked about with the practice areas, people realizing that you know, I can practice and then see where, where I can hit the ball and then go out on the golf course and try and hit those same shots.
0: Yeah, you you bring up some great points, and the ASGCA has been doing some great marketing and promotional work there, and I, I, I guess it would be sad if I couldn't play some courses with my dad that are great golf courses simply because there isn't the right team ground.
1: Right, that they're too difficult for, for those people. And I think people are, golfers at the same time, they're kind of realizing that you know golf is supposed to be fun and we're getting more and more that people are saying i'm just going to play this because i want to have fun mm-hmm. and i want to play a tee that i'm going to have fun on i don't care if i'm gonna you know i don't want to be able to, to shoot 100 anymore i want to shoot 80 now and i want to play a tee that i'm going to be able to do that on not worry sometimes so much about what their handicap's going to be and what score they need to post but just go out and have fun with their group
0: yeah and i would think it's a cost effective way too Michael, to uh, provide a different product for customers and potential customers is adding some teas compared to some other projects that can be done.
1: Right. Yeah. And when we're adding teas, teas are, you know, teas are not an expensive item to add when we're out there looking at a golf course. And that's one thing, too, when I, Talk about that whether again it's going back or going forward. Say when they look at the overall cost to the project, say adding another T here is just going to be another enhancement to it, and it really is, doesn't add a lot of cost to what we're looking at doing for the entire project.
0: Yeah, so so back to the Midwest. Uh, another course you've been working at is Waveland Golf Course in Des Moines, Des Moines, Iowa. Explain to our listeners what makes Waveland special and what type of work have you executed there.
1: Uh, with Waveland um, being in Des Moines, I, I began working there back in 2014. And, you know, one of the first things you learn is just, again, that course was just full of history. Um, I mean, one, it's just located three miles from downtown Des Moines. So it's about as much of an urban golf course as you can get. Um, Surrounded Drake University is almost right next door. And, and second, it was formed in 1901. So, and it's owned by the city of Des Moines, which makes it the oldest municipal golf course west of the Mississippi River. So there's a lot of history there involved as well. Um, and then since I've been working with them in 2014, we did a bunker remodel where we, re, you know, rebuilt all the bunkers out on the golf course, trying to reflect it back to that 1901 founding. And now, um, even before this would be prior pandemic that we we're even looking at, um from a practice area standpoint, is can we introduce a practice area? You know, again, being a 1901 golf course, they didn't have a practice area when it was built. And we wanted to see, could we fit one in on this property, even though it was landlocked. But we had enough area around the golf course where I think we're able to move some golf holes around and create a create a practice area. Um, you know, maybe not a couple acres of, of teeing ground, but enough teeing ground to satisfy the golfers that are going to be out there and to be able to use and give them an area where they can to practice their game, so um, we just finished up the planning on that. Um, you know, hopefully, it might be something that's going to take place next year. Again, just working through all the logistics of you know contractors and supply chain issues and all of that, and just kind of waiting through that and, and picking the right time where we can do that. But um, it was just been interesting again trying to relate. And create features again that are going to reflect that you know early 1900s design style that they had there, and not create something that's completely different.
0: Uh, how amazing is it that a municipal golf course can last 121 years?
1: <laughs> exactly, <Yep. laughs> and like you say, it's it's pretty much all intact. I think you know, like I say, I rebuilt some bunkers, and and I, the greens are all still original. and just yeah, it's an amazing piece of property. Very hilly property, which is one thing, but the golfers love it and they love playing it.
0: How do you get work done at a place that's so busy too? How do you schedule the work? How do you plan the projects? I'm guessing they're they're not closing a lot of days there to do uh course renovations.
1: No, they're not. And that's one of the especially what we're getting into here where we're like say we're actually gonna be rebuilding moving some holes around and rebuilding mm-hmm. some greens, is we are trying to say luckily there's some areas that we were able to work that we're gonna be able to work in where there's no golf holes, so we'll be able to get that work done during the summertime and get it and get it seated. Um, but then the other part of the work might be done more later in the fall, and we might be looking at, you know, sodding more areas in order to get it back into play as quickly as possible. Um, but that is always a challenge. That's a challenge sometimes a- anywhere you work, as far as do you need to co- close on the golf course, or how can you work around golfers? Luckily, we were all kind of used to it, so <laughs> yeah. um, we're able to make it work.
0: <laughs> uh, now, now, getting closer to your Chicagoland home. Uh, Got to ask you this question because I was looking at your Twitter feed and I saw the name on it. Uh, what does the name Walter Payton mean to you, and how does the legendary Bears running back's name now relate to a golf course that you're working on? Uh,
1: that yes, that is one thing um, with the Payton name and the Payton family. Um, Walter, I mean Walter, lived in the Arlington, in Arlington Heights when he played for the Chicago Bears. And I've been lucky enough to work with the park district there. Uh, they own a couple golf courses. I redid one of theirs, Arlington Lakes, in, in 2016. And then this past winter here, I'm I'm starting to work in on a plan at Nickel Knoll, which is a little nine-hole par-three golf course. And before Nickel Knoll was Nickel Knoll, it was a, an old landfill. And when Walter Payton lived in the Arlington Heights area and played for the Bears, he would use that area as training grounds and he would just run up and down these steep hills as, as part of his routine. And so it was something where, where the golf course, when they built the golf course in, in uh, 1995, they ended up, you know, incorporating and keeping these hills intact. And then in 2000, they actually dedicated part of the golf course as Peyton's Hill, which was an honor to his um, training ground and they have a tee up on the hill and they have a sign that says, you know, Hey, come climb the Peyton Hill, walk up to this tee and, you know, play the golf hole from here. Um, so they really tried to incorporate a lot of his legacy in, into, into the golf course as well. Um, for me coming, I mean, I moved into the Chicago area in night in 1988 and Peyton retired in 1987, just the year before that, right after they won the Super Bowl in 85. Um, so I never, you know, never really grew up, you know, Knowing him, I mean, we always knew about Walter Payton and, you know, the greatest runner and, and all of that. But I wasn't here to kind of hear it firsthand as to how he was doing. And um, I actually grew up a Packer fan, so it's kind of interesting then moving to Chicago. But <laughs> it, I did change over a couple of years after living here. Uh, so. <laughs>
0: it was good for business. It had to have been good to, for business making that change.
1: Uh, it, Yes, it can be. I mean, we do have a lot of Packer fans in the Chicago area as well, so... And, um, you know, when I first moved out here, I did some work actually on a a golf course up in green Bay and I'd go up there and there'd be you know old pack, retired Packers that would still be playing at the golf course and all that. So it was kind of interesting that way, but, um, being here for, you know, over 30 years now and and my wife's from here. So I've kind of changed over to be, to be in a Bears fan.
0: (laughs) Do they still talk about the 85 Bears 365 days a year where you live? (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> pretty much it seems <laughs> that's, that's about all there is
0: says so. <laughs> so the course going to be a par 34 wasn't walter payton number 34
1: you know that would be a good if we could do that that would be great yes <laughs> yes he was but mm-hmm. yeah un- unfortunately just it's, like you say it's a nice uh, it's a nice nine hole par three course um it's kind of tucked away so we're trying to get a little bit more exposure in that regard and we're going to hopefully open it up uh you know, the bears might be moving to Arlington Lake or Arlington Heights, so that's gonna be something that uh might come about and then we're gonna kinda of look at that and say, Hey, you know what? Tell people that yes, this is where Walter trained, this is where Walter lived and, and try and get more of uh uh more of the golf course open to other people then as well, instead of it's just the people that live in the surrounding area.
0: How fun is it to do projects at Waveland and, and the projects you've done with Arlington Heights that so many people are going to get the experience and enjoy? How rewarding are those municipal projects that you do?
1: It's it's always fun. It's it's fun to go back and look at them and see people playing yeah. them, and, and sometimes sit in the clubhouse and and just kind of listen to go, you know golfers what they might say about the golf course. Um, you know, not reveal who you are, but just kind of eat you know eavesdrop into what they're saying. And it's just, I mean, that's always with us, I believe, probably with every architect. And that's really the rewarding part of the job And when you go back and you look at a project you completed and you see people enjoying it because that's, that's really what we're set out to do is we want to create playing fields that people are enjoying to play and they have fun and they can go spend, you know, two, three, four hours out on a golf course and just kind of get away from everything else and just kind of, you know, enjoy the game but also feel the frustration of the game at the same time.
0: Last thing here, and this is a completely loaded question. Uh, any predictions for the NFC Central this year?
1: <laughs> it seems around here, it always goes around to the to the Green Bay Packers. I mean, <laughs> I, think, I think as long as 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 long as Aaron Rodgers is still playing for them, I mean, he's one of the best out there, and I keep saying he, you know, he can carry that team as as far as he wants to. It seems.
0: Yeah, and he's going to enter the season with Big Momentum after winning a nationally televised golf match the other night. <laughs>
1: That's right. That's right. So <laughs> uh, Yep. <laughs> well, well, yeah, he missed, I believe he missed the OTAs because of that. So I'm sure, yeah, <laughs> we'll see what happens.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I think he'll be all right. And uh, I think the golfers where you uh, have worked are going to be more than all right with the great work that you've done. Thank you so much for joining the podcast again. And let's uh, try to do this now at least once every four years instead of once every five years. <laughs>
1: that That'd be great guy now I always appreciate seeing you around and talking with you as well and um obviously, the good work with the tartan talks you know we have a a lot of great members, and I'm glad that you're able to talk with all of them
0: yeah, well, thanks a lot and uh, I'll have to run Peyton Hill when I get to arlington heights
1: you You can do that, <laughs> I'll meet you out there. <laughs>